Welcome to Click, Treat, Repeat. This is a horse-focused podcast discussing positive reinforcement training, equine management and welfare, and other horse-related topics. So let's get started. If anthropomorphizing is not really a good thing to do, how else should we kind of look at situations? Like I said, I think we've kind of expressed that, like you really need to get a good knowledge of horse ethology and behavior to really understand how horses behave as a species and also just get a lot of time with horses so that you can understand them better by just kind of having that time around them. And I think a lot of people call that like a horse-centric approach where we try to look at what the horse is doing from the horse's perspective you know, thinking about things like, are the horse's basic needs met? Has the horse had access to like adequate forage, movement, freedom, kind of all of those things that, you know, could be like in the five freedoms or the basic needs of horses, kind of trying to look at like those sorts of factors and also trying to look into like learning about what emotions horses do feel. And there are a lot of emotions that they feel, even though they don't have as developed of a frontal lobe as we do. And maybe we can do another episode on horse emotions. I definitely don't have like the research prepared or the knowledge to make like a really accurate statement on that right now. But I think that'd be really cool to do an episode on. So I think kind of trying to have that horse centric approach is probably what we should try to do if possible. Yeah, I agree with that. I think focusing on what the horse might actually be experiencing rather than what I guess we think we would be experiencing or the emotions we would feel is a good way to go about it because like you said, they do feel emotions, but it's, I guess, more condensed than ours. Like we have a really wide range of emotions and they have likely the Panscup's seven core emotions is what they're experiencing from what we know. So it's just a way condensed version of what we're experiencing. Yeah, that's very true. And I think that would be really cool for us to do an episode on those when we have the time. But I also think it could be useful too, even when we are interpreting it as best we can from the horse's kind of perspective in their context of what they need as a species. Also recognizing that like there is going to be some anthropomorphism in almost any thing that we think about a horse just because I mean we're human we can't completely go into the mind of a horse to say we could would be pretty much as ridiculous as the natural horsemanship trainers who think (laughs) that they can be a horse and go in the round pen and communicate with their horse like a horse like there's just species differences there and so there are things that we don't understand about horses no matter how much research we do there are always going to be things that we just couldn't know unless we could be a horse and we can't so we're just kind of outside of that framework. So I think both trying to understand as much as we can about them and really think about it from their perspective and use kind of like objective behavioral terms whenever possible to describe the actual behaviors that they're engaging in. Like instead of saying he's being naughty, instead say he bucked under saddle because that's just a objective statement of what he did and then when you have that objective statement you're able to think about well what other objective factors that that horse experienced according to their species needs could have led to that situation and so there's you know definitely that looking at it from their perspective and then also acknowledging hey yeah I know I'm looking at it from their perspective but I understand that I'm never going to completely 
be able to let go of all of the anthropomorphism because I am a human. So yeah, I think it's definitely important to do that because if we get so deep into thinking that we're really looking at it from the horse's perspective without acknowledging that there are things we don't know, that even becomes anthropomorphism because we're like so sure that we are interpreting the horse properly but yet we're still like having elements of our human-centered framework. And so, yeah, I just really think we also need to acknowledge that we can't understand everything about the horse. Yeah, that's true. There definitely has to be some amount of balance between those two things. And also with emotions, we can't necessarily know exactly what the horse is feeling or why. Like, is the horse bucking under saddle because they're afraid of the rider or are they bucking because the saddle fit is poor? There's so many different things that go into what a horse is feeling, and it can be really hard to actually dissect that and figure out what the real cause is, especially knowing that we can do our best to rule out things like pain and to change the management. But again, we can't go into the horse's mind, so we can't always know exactly how they're feeling. Yeah, exactly. And I completely agree with that. There's just certain things that we aren't going to be able to know. And then I also think that's why it's so important for people to see training as like sort of problem solving where you might think that one thing is happening and it might really be something else and you know that's okay I think even the best trainers and the best behavior consultants and you know all of the professionals in the or in the animal behavior and training industry there are going to be situations that they look at the first time and they think one thing's happening but it's actually the other thing that's happening and that's okay because you know, obviously we can't know everything and any sort of information you get is information that can help you get closer to improving that animal's welfare and helping them have, you know, a chance at being somewhat understood and somewhat accommodated to their needs in the human-centric world. Yeah, definitely. I feel like a lot of the time when I go into either work with my own horses or with clients, I just, I go in with like a vague plan. I never am super specific about it because I want to meet the animal where they're at and the person where they're at, not kind of pushing my agenda on them. But if I go in with a plan and think that a behavior is happening for a certain reason, I will be wrong a lot of the time because again, you can't really know what the animal's thinking You can have an idea, but it might be a completely different issue than what you originally thought it was. Yeah, exactly. And that also connects to, like you alluded to, we can't rule out pain, for example, because there's just so many variables and so many factors. We can never really be sure of what is causing what. And I think that also does relate to what we have been talking about with the intrinsic episodes, um, not to get back into all of that <laughs> business, but I think, you know, seeing a facial expression and saying like, oh, this is the horse being excited, or this is the horse being focused. To me, that is anthropomorphism. And it's, it's not really using kind of like the framework that I explained previously of kind of looking at objective behaviors like we could say ears are back or ears are to the side and the the distance at the base is increased the eyes are experiencing orbital tightening we're seeing some triangle eye the nostrils are flared the jaw muscles are tensed we can say those things objectively and then we can say according to the research what does that maybe tell us and then the research tells us 
that means the horse is in pain or stressed or, you know, those type of things. And so for me, that's sort of where I think anthropomorphism can become an issue when we kind of go ahead and say like, this is the emotion before we're really like starting with those really objective things and looking at like, what do we have evidence that this means? And the evidence that we have could be wrong. I mean, I, I don't think that the horse grimace scale is wrong, but there could be some information that's going to come out that will show that when horses are focused, they make that facial expression. And I really hope that that information does come out. And I really think that that would be really good news for a lot of the traditional riding horses that, that do make that face if there's a possibility that those horses actually aren't experiencing those negative emotions. Like, I just want horses to feel good. So if horses can feel good making that facial expression, that's great. But there's just not the research for that right now. So again, not to get back into that business, but I do think it connects with the sort of anthropomorphism there. And just wanting to say, I don't know for sure if the horse is in pain, but according to the research and the objective kind of things that I can see about their face, that's what it looks like. Yeah, for sure. That kind of reminds me of, we always talk about Adele's course, but in the foundation course, she had a section about Panscap 7 core emotions. In that, she talked a little bit about kind of unpacking those labels. She was talking more, I think, behavior specific, if I remember right. So like the horse bucks under saddle, well, why are they doing that? That kind of thing. But she also talked about it with calling a horse calm. So calm to me could be the horse is sleeping. Calm to someone else could be maybe they're not chewing on the bit. Like it's such a wide range of descriptors based on each individual person and probably even their horse too. It's hard to know what someone really means when talking about a behavior or emotion if we're not breaking down what we're actually trying to communicate. So a horse that is stressed to some people might be a horse that's bucking out and actually trying to harm you, where with other people, it might just be a horse whose ears are back and maybe they're licking and chewing. Like there's so much variance person to person. Yeah, that is really true. And I think that is a very good point and why we should really try to use those objective sort of words when we can just describing the behavior, even though like we all understand that they're, that horse is feeling emotions and things like that behind that behavior. We just don't know what that is really. So that's why we have to look at the objective behavior. I know a lot of people kind of critique behaviorism because of it really focusing only on the behavior and not on the emotions, which is sort of a fair point because the actual history, at least as I understand it from kind of a philosophy of of science perspective more so than an actual psychology perspective but from what I've kind of understood from philosophy of science perspective is that a lot of early behaviorism really was genuinely like yeah behavior is all there is there's nothing like behind behavior which just I don't think that's the the view that a lot of people really are taking right now we're really just saying that we just don't really know what it is. And so we're going to look at the objective things that we can see as behavior to try to give us a little bit of insight into how to make that animal's experience be better. Yeah. And that's more than just saying, oh, the horse's ears are pinned, so they're mad or they're frustrated. That's looking at the whole context. So what time of day it is? Is it sunny or is it raining? Was the horse in a stall or turned out at night? Like we're looking at every little piece of what might be actually causing that behavior and emotion, not just what the behavior is and how to fix it. Yeah, exactly. I just think that's something that 
a lot of people just either don't think about or they just really want to focus in on the emotions. And I think that that can just be a slippery slope. Sometimes it's really helpful. Sometimes it leads to the positive results and sometimes it doesn't. And so, yeah, I just think that's something to be aware of. Yeah. And with that too, if you are talking with other professionals in the more behaviorism field, or if you're focusing more on emotions, it's good to ask questions and have open conversations because that idea that behaviorists and trainers are only focusing on the behavior and what's causing it, but not really the emotions isn't really true anymore. It might've been at one point, but that hasn't been my experience with other trainers currently. Yeah, I agree. That hasn't really been my experience either. I really have seen a lot of trainers really trying, especially in the positive reinforcement world, to be really clear about the behavior that they're modifying or just even behavior they're observing, just being really objective with their descriptions or at least, you know, trying to apply it to some factor that is genuinely rooted in horse ethology. So I'm really impressed by that. And I think that a lot of the education that people have been doing about like bianthropomorphizing is not great is just really, really helpful. And I think it's really making a positive impact. So I would like to see it. Yeah, it would be so cool to see those same views apply to traditional horsemanship, because even if people don't decide to switch over to positive reinforcement or even incorporate it at all, they might be looking more at the behavior and the emotions and trying to help the horse actually understand what they're saying rather than just constantly having this battle between the horse and the rider. Yeah, that's very true. Like, even though I do train with as much positive reinforcement as possible, avoid pressure as much as possible, I do definitely think that even people who do use pressure or mix or even don't use positive reinforcement at all and only use pressure, like having that knowledge is really helpful and it can really help you understand what it is that you're actually doing and it can make your training more effective and make everything just a little bit easier when you're actually, I mean, if you're trying to, even just like with humans, if you're trying to like, work with somebody and like cooperate with them and do a job with them if you don't understand anything about that person and you just feel like everything they do is against you and you don't try to look into any actual things about what they're what they actually are like doing and you just prescribe your own like interpretations to it of course that's not gonna be very cooperative it's gonna be unpleasant it's gonna be pretty harmful to both you and the other person and it's not going to accomplish the goal you're trying to accomplish very well so whatever methods you're using if you really try to look at it as you and the horse are on the same team you should do everything you can to genuinely understand what that horse is communicating even given the fact that we can never fully understand I think that would just be so valuable Yeah, that's so true. And this isn't really related to the same topic, but still within anthropomorphism. But I think the idea of hierarchy type systems with horses would also kind of fall into anthropomorphism. Because when we think of like our relationships in the workplace, like we have a boss and we have a supervisor and then there's like the actual workers. So there's kind of even a ranking system in our normal lives too. And then we apply that to horses or really pretty much any animal that we <laughs> that we live with and train with. So I don't want to dive like super deep into that because I'm pretty sure we did an episode on it, but that was just another thought I had too. Yeah, that's a really good point and definitely something to acknowledge. Like 
dominance theory basically is anthropomorphism like yeah. it just is um <laughs> and um there is research that discusses that and we've discussed that research in our podcast before and I have also made an Instagram post about it possibly multiple Instagram posts about it and there's just a lot of information out there I really like my dominance theory is dead Instagram post I really think it's very informative and whatnot and I think when I think about why does dominance theory exist to me one of the biggest like explanations that comes up is that it's because it's how we understand things like you said at work that's how our hierarchies function and even that oversimplifies the human world too but humans do like to categorize things and see it in a simple way so it makes sense that they'd want to do that for horses too and you know most of us too like we've discussed we don't spend all day every day observing our horses a lot of the time we see them for a couple hours and then we kind of leave them alone for most of the day and you know that varies from person to person but I think a lot of that too is that we just don't even see what they're doing so we see a horse chase another horse and we're like oh yeah they're just like the objective dominant one who's constantly like being in charge but we're not actually watching what really happens and if you look into the research about especially how like feral herds behave and specifically research that's using objective terms to describe what they're seeing not research that is like using the word dominant in a way that they don't define and whatnot that's really one of my pet peeves like <laughs> getting off on a tangent but when people in research use words like dominant and they're not really clear about what they're meaning by that because there is like a accepted usage of it but that accepted usage is not scientifically accurate really so if you're going to use a word like dominant I really think you should like clarify what you mean by it and I'm not even opposed to using it if you do like explain what you're meaning by it but um yeah, if you look into that research that really gives you like an explanation of how the horses interact and doesn't like apply anthropomorphic labels to it, you can ask yourself, like, does this sound like dominance? And, you know, the answer is going to be no. So I think, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, we don't need to go away. I went way into this further than we need to, but <laughs> we always do that. So it's fine. It's fine. I saw this video on Facebook yesterday that was it was like a skit kind of thing. I think it was a TikTok, but it came up on Facebook anyways, because that always happens. But it was this lady and it was just like quotations, like she was talking to herself, but pretending to be two different people. And she had asked someone their dog was dominant or whatever animal was dominant. And then she was like, which hand of yours is dominant? And the person was like, oh, my left. And then she was like, okay, so did your right hand beat him up? And <laughs> I just couldn't stop laughing at that because it's just, that's what we think of dominance and it's not true like if you apply it to which hand you use that's a good example that isn't necessarily a, like alluding to aggression or anything like that it's just the hand that you use more so with horses the best description I can give and that I've seen is that it's more about priority to resources so in a case where maybe you're throwing out hay the horse that gets the hay first would technically be the dominant horse but that doesn't mean that they're aggressive it doesn't mean that they don't like the other horse it just means they're the one getting the hay first and that's really all it is. Yeah, exactly. And I was at a clinic once and somebody asked, I think I've even told the story before, I, like basically being a podcaster is just retelling stories over and over. But um, <laughs> somebody asked like, which horse in this herd is the alpha? And then someone else at the clinic was like, in what context, like in what situation? I mean, like word like alpha just isn't useful in general. But when you're asking like, 
how the dynamics of the horse herd is going to work. It really depends on the individual context of like, what is that situation? How are the horses feeling that day? Like what subjective factors have affected them? And we can't even know all of those things, which is a lot of why it's not so useful to kind of construct those hierarchies because we don't actually understand them. Yeah, definitely. I know I talked to you about it off of the podcast, but like with the fosters coming, one was described as the boss and one was described as not. And it ended up being actually kind of totally the opposite because the one that they labeled as the boss horse was the one that is a lot more insecure. She's not really handled much and she has some resource guarding issues. So like I took that information in and tried to kind of put their perspective on what that might mean because I've been in the traditional world. So I have a good idea of what people are usually trying to say, but it was interesting to me that it ended up actually totally flip-flopping because it's a completely different situation. They're with strange horses, their feeding schedule changed. Everything is just different. Exactly. And I mean, like, of course, because dominance, as people understand it, is so tied to resource guarding, of course, situations that are going to promote resource guarding, like if there's limited food, only one source of food, really small area, not space for them to move away from each other. Of course, like in those situations, you're going to see something that looks more like dominance. And then there's also the whole situation of like, when people do measure a dominance hierarchy, a lot of the time, the way they they do it is through the bucket test which is where you you know get a bucket of food and you put two horses there and you see which one gets to eat from the bucket and which one doesn't and then they do that and they see a consistent hierarchy there like if you look into the research a lot of the time there is at least like a fairly stable hierarchy that comes up from that but then when you throw those horses out into the actual like pasture they don't actually see what they're seeing in the bucket test So it's also, I think, an element of sometimes we kind of test things in a way that to us makes sense, but isn't actually simulating the actual horse environment and really telling us like the true information. Yeah, like the bucket test would give me more information about which horse might be insecure about resources rather than which horse is the leader because my lens is coming from a scientific standpoint, not a more traditional based approach. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's bucket test is information, but it doesn't necessarily mean that like, oh, that horse is always dominant in every single situation or whatever. The idea of we're in this specific area and a horse is eating out of a bucket is much different than like, we're in a different area and, you know, a different situation is happening. Like, I think as trainers, we're very aware of the fact that horses are not as good with generalization as we are. And I think that can apply to their natural behavior too. Like, you know, in different contexts they really behave differently and if you want them to behave consistently in multiple contexts that's something that you actually really have to work on and really shape and obviously for their natural behavior it could be shaped by the other horses around them engaging with them but when horses are more comfortable or less comfortable in certain environments of course that's going to change the situation socially Yeah. And dynamics between different horses will change gradually too. Like with the foster example, these horses don't really know each other. So I think it's totally fair for there to be some resource guarding because they just don't know what the other horse is going to do or how much of the resource they're going to take. There's so many factors, but as they get more comfortable with each other, they'll probably actually have a pretty good relationship. So the social structure hierarchy, if you want to call it that, will change over time. 
and with training and confidence levels and the new property, like all different kinds of things go into it. And I don't know, it's just dominance as it's usually labeled doesn't really exist, but those relationships will change based on all the different factors I listed and more really. It's endless. And again, this was kind of off topic, but I think it's (laughs) somewhat on topic because dominance theory is anthropomorphism. And I think it's just useful to talk about a lot, especially because unfortunately, There are still a lot of people who I do respect and think are very knowledgeable, but unfortunately still buy into a lot of the elements of dominance theory, really trying not to call out another specific (laughs) podcast. (laughs) But um, (laughs) yeah, I love that podcast and no hard feelings, but that was kind of an awkward interaction that we had about dominance theory. So, (laughs) but yeah, so I think that's definitely useful. And I honestly don't really have a ton more to say on the topic. I feel like just kind of saying anthropomorphism, Probably something to avoid, but it can be positive. Overall, doing our best to use the most objective terms we can while also recognizing that we don't know everything is probably best. And just trying to take a horse-centric approach and learning from, you know, horses in the science we have about horses, but also understanding that horses do have emotions, like humans are not the gatekeepers of emotions or shouldn't be like animals also have emotions, but they're just different from ours. And I think that's really like the main view that I have on it. Yeah, I think a lot of what we do with horses and a lot of the ideas with training in general are pretty much all gray areas because we can't know everything, unfortunately. Like I wish I could just soak it all in, but (laughs) there's so much. And there's so much we don't know yet, too. So, yeah, it's definitely tricky. And it can be positive to use anthropomorphism, but it can also be really damaging. So I think, like with most things in training, I think people probably hate hearing this, but it does really depend on the situation. Yeah, everything depends on the situation. I mean, I think we definitely have opinions on what is better and what is worse. I mean, you know, things like Lima, like start with the least intrusive, minimally aversive thing you can do. And then if the situation requires it, you can move down to the less ideal, but still tools that we have. And that's okay. And it's not like necessarily morally wrong to get to that situation as long as we started first with the, you know, lesser things and then move kind of down the hierarchy as necessary. Nothing is like black and white, but these are just kind of things to understand and to keep as a framework for how we should ideally handle things. How we think about and talk about our horses will also likely change how we feel about them, whether we mean it to or not. So if you're constantly calling your horse names, you're probably not going to have the best relationship with them because it's not built on respect and trust and understanding of your horse. It's just built on thinking that they're doing things out of spite or just to bother you, whatever the case. Yes, I agree completely. And that's pretty much all I have. So I don't know. Do you have anything else? Not really. I mean, I think we should just rename this podcast. It depends. But (laughs) (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this episode of Click, Treat, Repeat. Feel free to check us out on Instagram at Click, Treat, Repeat pod. You can find Jen at Genuine Equine and myself at Bonafide.bt. We upload new episodes every Monday and hope to see you then. Happy training.